Lord, would you be with us this morning? We know you are. May we know you're here. May we believe uh, what we know. And uh, we ask that you would grow us in you, Lord, to, yeah, just spur us on to live this life with you as you've created us. Uh, All week long, we are bombarded with uh, lies of the enemy, and we so often forget the gospel, who we are in you, who you are, and I pray that this would be a time of reminder of your goodness. Be with me as I speak, Lord, may it be all you, and may we all rest in you, in your name, amen. All right, well, a few years ago, this may have happened to you too, I started getting the same text message. It was like a few months long. Two to three months this happened. Any hour of the day, any hour of the night, I'd wake up in the morning and it would be there. It'd always be from somebody different. Sometimes people whose contact I had saved, sometimes random numbers. And this text only said three words. Every time I got it, it said the same thing. It said, God's not dead. Did this happen to you guys, some of you? And I know I got it that first time, and I looked at my phone, and I just kind of was confused, and I was like, okay, like, I agree. I don't think I needed the reminder. And then it happened more and more, and it didn't take long to connect that, oh, yeah, there's a movie in the theaters right now called God's Not Dead. And I just kind of guessed and went, probably when the credits roll, it says something like, text everybody you know and tell them God's not dead. I never saw the movie, so if it was a marketing plan, it, it didn't work with me at least. Um, and I got it, I used to teach high school, so I got it from former students and family members and everybody who loved this movie that I believe the premise is, you know, somebody's speaking up about the existence of God. But it wasn't, you know, it was like a helpful reminder, I guess, but I never at any point was like, man, I wonder if God's dead. <laughs> well, fast forward to last year, last Easter, actually, about a year ago, what, what do we text all our family and friends on Easter? We say, He is risen. We see each other. It's what Christians have done throughout time. Tell each other he's risen. He's risen indeed because it's the greatest truth we believe. So Easter Sunday, I'm home, out of the uncomfortable dress clothes, resting on the couch, and I texted my friend Gene, who's not a believer. We used to teach together. He's a Spanish speaker. Uh, He's uh, Jewish by heritage, but he's not practicing. But we've we've talked about Jesus. He knows about the gospel. Um, We're hopeful that one day he'll come to know the Lord. And so I sent him a a text with our family photo. And then I said in Spanish, I said, Happy Easter. But the Spanish word for Easter also means Passover. So a little two for one for my Jewish friend. Uh, And I said, He is risen. And I really like, I kind of sat there on the couch saying, Do I text him this or not? You know, anytime you want to share, even if it's small about Jesus, you get that pushback. But I said, He's risen. Happy Easter. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if he's, that's going to be the thing that saves him, you know? Because <laughs> we've talked about Jesus. I'm just going to put him in front of Jesus in front of him one more time. And I get a text back from him a few hours later. And he says, Happy Easter. I have risen. I just took a great nap. <laughs> and I was like, kind of mad, kind of offended, kind of blasphemous, kind of funny, you know? And I was like, I, I was kind of offended because like, it was kind of a big deal for me to text that to him, and then he just kind of blows it off. Now, I think in, in both of these instances, all these people who I think in good, good nature and good faith sent me those God's not dead texts, which is true, and me texting my friend Gene, 
I think the heart behind it was really good. Like, my desire is to continue to lovingly confront my friend with Jesus, even if it's on Easter and the truth of he is risen. I believe that. Um, but the effectiveness, I think, was lacking, right? My response to these God's Not Dead texts was pretty dismissive. It was, felt like a spam text after a while. And my friend kind of responded the same way. And so it just makes you wonder, like, is there a better way? But I also want to give credit to myself a little bit, but also to all these people who are texting me, because my, my heart was to continue to love my friend and show him Jesus, even if it was in this small way. I was just trying to play my part in telling the gospel story that God continues to unfold, and I think that was the case for those who are texting me as well. And so today, we're going to be in John chapter 19. If you have your Bible, open it up to there. If you have your Bible app, open it up to there. John 19, we'll finish out the chapter. We've been walking through the book of John for a while now, and over the last two chapters and number of weeks, we've been walking through the last moments of Jesus' life. Up until this point, he's been uh, arrested, he's been unfairly tried, he's been beaten, he's been mocked, he's been crucified, and now he's dead. The last we saw a few verses prior was the soldiers stabbing his side to make sure he was dead and the blood and water flowing out, confirming it. He's given up his spirit, he's died, and he, at this point, is a, just a dead body. So even as I got those texts saying, God's not dead, and I was texting my friend, he is risen, in this passage where we are today, Jesus, who is God, is dead, and he isn't risen. And I, I want to take some intentional time to wrap our minds around that and try to put ourselves in this space because we are on the other side of the story. We exist post-resurrection. We know that Jesus rises again. And even that diminishes his death on the cross, I think, because we know how the movie ends. But they didn't know that. What if John ended at chapter 19? What if the last thing you see was that the Jewish, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Uh, we have a Good Friday service here, and I never really understood the importance of Good Friday, never felt it, that was for sure, until we started having Good Friday services here. And this feeling that we're trying to get at, I think help, that helped me get that, because We'd walk, we walk through in this Good Friday service all these horrible things that Jesus allows to happen to him. And at the end, it says he's dead and he's buried. And then you walk out. And it feels like I'm leaving a funeral, that this is the last time I'm going to be able to be with this person. And then I just have to move on with my life. And it makes Sunday that much sweeter when Easter does come. But at this point in the story, Jesus is dead. Everybody's fled, except for John and some of the women who love him. Even the crowds have dispersed because the show is over. Uh, so there's probably a few soldiers and the women and John, and that's about it. So that's the scene we enter into. Jesus is dead. And if no one comes to get his body as a criminal, which we know he's not, but he's tried and crucified as a criminal... If no one comes to get his body, a few things are going to happen. One, his body's going to stay on the cross to decay. 
to show the Ro- the, for the Romans to show all who pass by, if you oppose the Roman government, this too will be what happens to you. And then when they decide to take him down, he's not going to get buried. He's not going to get put in a tomb. He's not going to be buried in the ground. He's not going to be put in a coffin. He's going to be thrown on basically a trash heap outside the city for dogs and wild animals to come do what they do. Which feels really, really wrong. So that's the reality of the scene we're entering today. Let's read. Verse 38, it says this. After these things, all the things we just talked about, he is dead. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body. Now, the first question I think we need to ask and answer is, who is Joseph of Arimathea? Now, if you've grown up in the church or been around a while, read your Bible, you should probably be familiar with him because he's the guy who comes and buries Jesus. Spoiler alert for today's sermon. Um, Prior to this in the book of John, and never again after is he mentioned. This is the first time we hear about Joseph of Arimathea. He's not mentioned again in the rest of John, in Acts, in anywhere in the Bible, the rest of the Bible. But all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all talk about him. So he has to be important. Throughout the book of John, we we see John, the, the writer of this, seemingly randomly introduce and weave characters into the story. A few weeks ago, Juan Chavez came and he preached, and in that passage, we saw this man, Barabbas, who, like Joseph of Arimathea, we hadn't heard anything about before, and we don't hear anything about after. And I remember for years, up until like two, three years ago, I'd read that and hear about that and just think, this is not fair, he's this criminal, he's been set free, and that was kind of that. But as Juan preached, John, the writer, introduces Barabbas, and in doing so, gives us a clear picture of the gospel. That you have this condemned criminal, this murderer, this revolutionary, standing next to this perfect savior, and all he's ever done is heal people. And who gets arrested and who goes free? The criminal is released, given freedom, and the free man takes his punishment, which is the gospel. So John is clearly doing something here with talking about Joseph of Arimathea, and God is clearly doing something here. So who is he? All four Gospels talk about him. Here's what they say. Joseph of Arimathea is a rich man. In Matthew, it says that. In all four, it says that he's from Arimathea, which is this Jewish town. Matthew, again, says he's a disciple of Jesus. Mark and Luke say he's a respected member of the council. This is the council that just condemned Jesus to die. This is the Sanhedrin. It's a member of a group of 71. It's like an exclusive, elite, religious, political group, council, 71 members, and he's not just one of those, which would be pretty uh, respected enough, but he is a respected member in that council. It says again in Mark and Luke that he's looking for the kingdom of God, another way to say that he's a disciple of Jesus. He's a good and righteous man, it says in Luke. Now, you might wonder, if he was in the room when Jesus was being condemned and unfairly asked these questions and hit in the face and spat upon with this counsel, why didn't he speak up? Was he opposed? Was he for it? In Luke, it says he had not consented to the council's decision and action. 
So though he was there, he didn't agree with Jesus' condemnation. And then in John, we just read that he is a disciple of Jesus, but John adds that he's doing it secretly for fear of the Jews, the Jewish leaders, of which he's actually a part. We'll touch more on that here in a bit. So spiritually, he's a disciple of Jesus. He's seeking the kingdom. He's a good and righteous man. Societally, he's influential. He's wealthy. He is a respected member in the most powerful religious political council in the region. And we see this even as he goes at the end. We see at the end of verse 38 where it says he goes to Pilate and asks for Jesus' body, and Pilate grants, it permission, grants him permission. Pilate is the most powerful man in the region. He's the Roman governor. He represents the Roman Empire and Caesar. Whatever he says goes. And Joseph is able to go see him and talk to him directly and not get thrown out or killed, but actually to get his request approved. So Joseph is this influential rich man seeking Jesus who's able to go to Pilate and get the body of Jesus. Verse 39, it says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, Nicodemus is someone we have seen before. You may remember. Probably the most known verse in all of the Bible is John 3.16. And that is from the mouth of Jesus as he talks to Nicodemus. In chapter 3 of John, we see Nicodemus, who is a respected member of this same council, comes to Jesus at night, which we can presume, we don't know why, we can presume is similar to Joseph. He has to kind of go undercover to make sure he doesn't get caught. And we don't know if he walks away from this interaction with Jesus believing, not believing. We don't know at that point. But Nicodemus has encountered Jesus, has talked with him face to face. And Nicodemus, we also see him in John chapter 7. As the crowds are divided about Jesus at the Feast of Booths, Jesus declares who he is. And the crowds are going, is he a prophet? Is he the Christ? Is he a liar? And then the Jewish council is doing the same thing. And most are saying, or the most influential are saying, he's a liar. He doesn't know the law. But the irony is that they actually don't know the law. And they say, we need to get him arrested. And Nicodemus actually is the one who speaks up and says, hey, do we arrest somebody before we give them their day in court? That's my paraphrase. <laughs> but Nicodemus does speak up in that moment. And they turn on him and basically shut him down. So we have two men here, Joseph and Nicodemus. Both, we can presume, we know Joseph is, and we can presume Nicodemus is. They're disciples of Jesus. But they're also members of this respected council. They're, we would assume, high up in it. And you might go, hey, if they're respected members of this council, why didn't they keep Jesus from dying? Why didn't they say something? Why didn't they do something? Well, we already saw how they responded to Nicodemus previously. I don't think they were cowards. I know when I've read the interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus, and I see that he went to him at night, I kind of am like, like, coward. Go to him during the day, right? You're ashamed. And then we see in John that Joseph is a secret disciple because he's afraid of the Jews? Come on. Meanwhile, I'm afraid to send my buddy the text that says he is risen, right? 
I don't think they're cowards. I don't think they're ashamed. I think they understand the society they live in. And a lot, the way I think of it is a lot like our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world who are much bolder in their faith than we are because they don't have the convenience that we have. But they still have to operate with a healthy fear of the authorities in their belief. So we have these two men that have come on the scene. Joseph goes to Pilate. He asks for Jesus' body. Nicodemus apparently is aware and he brings 75 pounds of this mixture of myrrh and aloes to help prepare the body for burial, an expensive and heavy offering. In verse 40, it continues, it says, So they took the body of Jesus, and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Everyone else has left him except for John and the women. The other 10 disciples have abandoned Jesus. They're hiding somewhere, afraid. Judas has betrayed him. Somebody's got to do something with his body. And these men are able, with their influence, to go to Pilate's get the body, and they have the means to prepare it for burial. I talked to Jim this last week, who's been to the Holy Land, and I asked him, I said, hey, tell me about this garden. It says in the passage that the garden's close to the crucifixion site, and Jim said, oh yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) He said, you're at the hill where Jesus is crucified, and he said it's maybe a half mile, straight down the hill, this beautiful garden outside the city walls. They had a limited amount of time, Joseph and Nicodemus did, to get him buried, because the Jewish day of preparation was happening, which is the day before the Sabbath. Once the sun goes down on that Friday, if you're Jewish, you have to maintain all the Jewish law and standard of the Sabbath, which means you can't work, which means you can't move a body, which means you can't carry this heavy, expensive uh, jar of aloes and myrrh. All of these things would be disobeying the Lord in their custom. So time was ticking. They took his body down. They took it to this grave. They prepared it. They covered it in these, these spices and this aloe and this myrrh, and they wrapped it in these cloths, and they put him in this tomb. Now, we see in the other Gospels that this tomb was actually Joseph's own tomb. So it wasn't just like a a tomb of convenience, but Joseph himself had a tomb that no one had laid in before that was available to use. These two men one of which we've seen twice in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus, and the other, Joseph, who we hear nothing about before this, and we don't see one mention of the rest of the Bible, are used by God to carry out part of the greatest event that's ever taken place in the history of the world, which is Jesus' resurrection. There can't be an empty tomb if he's not buried in a tomb, especially if he's thrown out with the other criminals to basically decompose. When we see throughout Paul's letters, he talks often about Jesus' death 
his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven. This is a quarter of the greatest sequence of events that's ever happened. And Joseph, this man that we know nothing about, basically is used by God to help carry it out. There's got to be something there. And even there's an intentionality of preaching this sermon, these five verses, and not just lumping it in with what happens next or with what we preached on last week. We intentionally wanted to pause on this character, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, to see what is God doing with this? I think it's worth asking the question, what would this look like if it happened today? I know if you're like me, we like to place ourselves in the stories we read in the Bible, often wrongfully. <laughs> I'm David. No, you're like the scared Israelites, right? Or Goliath, maybe. But it's worth asking, where are you at this point in the story? Jesus is dead. He's crucified. Where are you? If you want to put yourself in the story, where are you? Are you with his mom and John watching everything that's unfolding? Are you the Roman soldiers who've crucified and overseen his death? Are you the disciples who are, who know, we don't have any idea where they are. We just know they scattered. They're most likely hiding somewhere. Or are you someone like Joseph or Nicodemus? It's worth wondering. I don't have an answer for you. Over the last like 10 or 20 years, kind of my teens to mid to late 20s, there is a, there has, it's less and less now, but there's been, there was a culture within Christianity, we'll call it a radical Christianity, that was really predominant. And what this culture said, and you'll go, yeah, I think as we talk about it, what this culture said was basically, hey, Jesus said to take up your cross and follow him. He told these people who had money to sell everything and to give it to the poor. He told others just to leave their families behind and their jobs behind and to follow him. So therefore, you need to do the same. And I think there's a lot of good from that and a lot of truth in that because Jesus did say those things. But the byproduct, the negative byproduct of that was this. The mindset happened, at least I've had it, I think others of you have had too, of if I don't sell everything I have and move to a third world country today, then I'm being disobedient to the Lord, I'm some like junior varsity Christian, I may not actually be saved, but I'm for sure not sold out, right? That's a term we used all the time. And so though this culture, I think, was helpful in a lot of ways, I think it breeded this unhelpful and unhealthy byproduct. Because what the heck are we doing here in Peoria? If that's the only way to be obedient to Jesus, then we're all failing, right? We're all failing. Because the only way this culture would say, the only way to really serve him is to leave everything and go far, far away to live with people who have less than you. Jesus did tell people to sell stuff. He didn't tell everybody to sell all their stuff. Some did leave their occupation right away. Others didn't. Jesus does call us to make him the ultimate desire of our hearts and to give everything to him and for him in all we do. But I would say this. God has gifted you 
and created you and wired you and put you in the place you are, including the seat you're in right now, on purpose for his glory. He has agents all throughout the world, all throughout the ages that carry out his gospel truth. And this is not telling you if you feel a call to global missions, go, right? Go do that. I'm not telling you not to do that. I'm not giving you a reason to be disobedient. But I am trying to encourage those of you, those of us who God has placed in this place now, in the occupation or the place in life we have, I am trying to encourage you. God in this passage uses an extremely wealthy, influential, high-ranking man to go to a, an official who most people couldn't get access to to carry out a huge part of the gospel story, which is to bury Jesus. And he does sacrifice. He gives up his tomb. He had spent a lot of money to have this tomb carved out. Even the type of tomb that it was was only reserved for those who had the wealth to purchase it. And even Nicodemus, right, influential, wealthy, he sacrifices and not only, I'm like, 75 pounds worth of liquid? That would be so much work to carry through those places. But also the wealth that he's giving up in that to help bury Jesus. So we see that end of the spectrum, these influential, wealthy men who are being obedient to whatever God has for that moment to carry out this huge part of the gospel story. But we also see in the gospels the opposite end. And one example would be the woman at the well. You might be familiar. She's in Samaria. The Samaritans and the Jews essentially hated each other. They disagreed over big theological points. They were second-class citizens. Oh, and by the way, she's a woman in the first century, which makes her, like, I'm not being disrespectful, lower than probably an animal at that point, lower than a slave societally. And yet Jesus encounters her at the well, <laughs> basically exposes her lovingly. And what does she do? She believes He's the Messiah, and she goes and tells everyone she can, come meet this man who told me everything I've ever done. And it says that many believed. Pi uh, excuse me, Joseph and Nicodemus would probably never be caught dead where she lives or in the circles she's at, and yet the woman at the well would not be able to go ever to be face-to-face -face with Pilate unless she's being condemned. And yet God is using both. So I mentioned a minute ago, what would all this look like if it happened today? We see all these people that God is using to carry out his gospel story. Let's go hypothetical. Some of you are teachers, some of you stay at home, some of you are retired, some of you have other occupations or your students. What would it look like, how would it look to carry out and live out the gospel in the midst of being a teacher? Some of you are teachers and you're like, I know the answer. And some of you are like, I still don't know the answer. <laughs> what would it look like to live out the gospel in the midst of being a social media coordinator? What about an accountant? How, do you, how does an accountant live out the gospel on a Tuesday morning at 11 a.m.? Not just how do they use their money that they make from being an accountant to, to bless the kingdom, but how do they live it out day in, day out? What about this one? How would it look to live out the gospel in the midst of being a garbage truck driver? How would that look? 
I like love trash day. It's not a weird thing, but I love getting rid of stuff and I love organizing. So when our trash gets picked up, I'm like, yes, more stuff gone. And we have little kids, so we're always accumulating more things. Please don't give them gifts. <laughs> but how would it look to, <laughs> all the parents like, yes. How would it look to live out the gospel as a sanitation worker, driving a garbage truck? I've waved to our garbage truck driver occasionally, but I've even wondered over, you know, the last few years that we've lived in our house, do they interact with anybody throughout the day? Or are they just solo in the truck all day, every day? Let's think about that. Let's, let's dive into that a little bit. How would it look to live out the gospel in the midst of being a sanitation worker? Mike Goheen and Jim Mullins wrote a book called The Symphony of Mission. It's, it's good. I'll read you this. They talk about this man named Bruce, who's a garbage truck driver. And he gives this introduction of Bruce, how when he's a believer, and when he gets in his truck in the morning, he sips his coffee, and he takes his rugged hands and his grizzled boots, and he fires up the truck. And as he gets ready for the day, he has these index cards taped to his dash to remind him of the gospel truths that he needs to be reminded of. It says this, Taped to Bruce's dashboard are several index cards with quotes and scripture verses to remind him of the sacred work of driving a sanitation truck. The sacred work of driving a sanitation truck. One of the first cards he reads each morning displays this quote from Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Or Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Leanton Price Sings before the Metropolitan Opera. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Goes on to say this. Oh, that's just the start, guys. Bruce isn't exactly a street sweeper, but in a way he's responsible for the cleanliness of the streets as he spends his days navigating narrow back alleys and using a robotic arm to scoop up the accumulated refuse of his neighbors. Another index card bears the words of Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. As he reads these words, Bruce is reminded that just as God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, so he has placed Bruce in that truck. Bruce's particular plot in God's garden happens to be the back alleys of his city. He cultivates that space for the glory of God. The broken glass, old furniture, weeds, and cinder block walls are the materials of his sanctuary a sacred space that belongs to God. He collects the trash with trembling reverence. It says every plastic bag or dirty diaper that Bruce keeps off the streets is an offering to honor his king. He sees himself as beautifying God's good earth and protecting the masterpiece of God's creation. Because of this, he's more motivated and joyful than all of his coworkers. He doesn't just do his job. He's a master of his craft as a driver, attentive to every tight turn and every detail. If this were just a menial task for him, he might be tempted to do the bare minimum. But he's working before the face of God, lifting up each trash bin with the robotic arm as if his own hands were raised in worship. Wow. It goes on to continue talking about Bruce in that he intentionally takes the hardest routes to alleviate the difficulty for his coworkers. And that he and his wife always have extra chairs at their dinner table because all of his coworkers know that they have an open invitation to come to his house whenever they want to get a free meal and to be at home. 
It says the reason they do this is because they know they've been adopted by God through Christ, and so they want others to know that they can be adopted into family, especially those coworkers who don't have good families. And then it says that he talks to them about Jesus, that when he talks to his coworkers about Jesus, he takes them around to the back of his truck, and he opens it up, and he shows them the trash. And he says everything in the back of this trash truck was at one point a good thing. The rotted food was once a delicious meal that gave sustenance and joy. The broken toys were once a great Christmas gift. But now it's all broken and rotting and it's in the trash to be compacted and destroyed. And he says, listen, we don't have to look in the back of a trash truck to know that that's happening all throughout the world. Things are broken. And he says, just as these things were once good, God made everything good. And yet sin entered in and broke it and decayed it like a disease. And it continues to permeate. But he says, God is fully within his right to, like they do to the trash, totally crush it and destroy it. God should do that to his creation. And yet, he sends Jesus to enter into the trash compactor so that, to use the analogy, everything else can be made totally new. And he says that some walk away rolling their eyes and others are hearing the gospel story and believe. This man, Bruce, is a garbage truck driver. He's a sanitation worker. He picks up the trash, which we know how important that is, but we often don't think about how important that job is. He's not interacting with many people throughout his day, yet when he does, he declares the gospel to them. Rather than just the ABCs or some four-step deal, he gives a big, holistic picture of the gospel that they can't help but understand. You might be a student. You might be a retiree. You might be a new mom. You might be a grandparent. You might be single. You might be in the career that you know you're called to. You might be in a season of life that you're struggling and you have no idea what you're supposed to be doing. And yet God has placed you in that time. He hasn't abandoned you. And he's with you in this moment. Intentionally, you're in that moment so that you can show the world the gospel. Joseph literally played a part in the gospel story. He was used by God to bury Jesus. Without the burial, there's no resurrection. The gospel story is being told, and he's a big part of it. And God continues now, right now, to tell the gospel story to the world. And you are a part of it. My wife, we are blessed that she is able to stay at home with our two kids, one of which is in preschool and will soon be in school, and the other will be in preschool, and it'll be glorious. <laughs> um, but it feels like most of the time she's just getting emotionally and psychologically abused and tortured because <laughs> they're four and five. Just we have tissues around for all the people who are in the same space in life. And yet she is a massive purpose in God's kingdom to continue this unfolding gospel story. And not just with our daughters, but to people who come into our house and people she interacts with. God is continuing to grow her and use her as she points the girls to Jesus. Some of you, like I said, might be struggling in this place, and this sermon may be helping, hopefully. Some of you didn't, weren't struggling, and now you are. <laughs> and I would just say to you, we're, we, John, Jim, myself, Summer, our church leadership, we're glad to sit with you and listen and hopefully help you navigate that. The gospel stories continue to unfold, and it's not just 
and this is important, but it's not just the person who's telling their coworkers about Jesus, which matters. We don't just work for Jesus. We need to tell our friends. But it's also in the accountant or the financial advisor who does everything with the utmost integrity, who seeks to serve their clients well, that they can trust him because they don't understand how all this works, but they know that their life savings are in good hands because he can steward his money or her money and their money in a godly way as God's called them. We saw that with Bruce in the garbage truck. We see it with teachers who may, legally may not be able to declare the gospel truth as they have this captive audience, but who can pray with students when they come to them after school because their dad just left or their mom has cancer. And these kids, for the rest of their life, can reach out to that teacher knowing that they're a place of safety and hopefully can come to know Jesus. We can go on with examples the rest of the day, and I would love to do that, but we're not going to. But God is you in your place in life. Once you pass, you may never be mentioned again, just like we see in Joseph here. But God is using you right now in the place you are to continue to live out this beautiful gospel story in all of your life. May we do that well. Let's pray. God, I know as somebody who has personally really struggled through, uh, especially in the, the world of vocation, what this looks like, um, why you'd have me in the place I am vocationally, how can it glorify you? Um, and even at home with our little ones, I've often wondered what you're doing, and yet you're working, and we're not like robotic pawns, unloved pawns in your army, but we're loved, beloved sons and daughters because of the cross and the resurrection. You're faithful. You're near. You're guiding us always. May we know how it looks to walk in you and to play our part in your gospel story as we continue to show the world your goodness as you continue to make all things new. We want to be a part of that, Lord. We want to be faithful to you in that and obedient to that. Where you've placed us in, in this season, currently, for most of us, it's here in this city. But some will move and some will move jobs, and we just ask for your help in that and that we would live truly all of life, all for you, Jesus, boldly declaring you in how we do things and in, um, in what we say. Help us in that spirit. We know you will. In your name, amen.